This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. This year, as we've talked about in this program on numerous occasions, marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. To say that the murder of our 35th president is still controversial in terms of what went down, I think is something of an understatement. Poll after poll over the years has shown that something like 85 to 90 percent of the public uh, has doubts about the official findings of the Warren Commission that uh, the murder was the work of one lone, deranged person. In our second segment today, we'll be talking about this very topic, specifically the medical evidence in the case. Joining us to do that will be San Francisco physician Gary Aguilar. Dr. Aguilar has obtained permission to examine the autopsy materials, photographs, and x-rays, which still exist, and has done so on more than one occasion. He's also conducted an exhaustive review of what was said on that fateful day back in 1963 about the nature of the president's mortal wounds. You would expect that after time and exhaustive study, eventually the evidence would all come together. In this case, it has not. And we will talk about that in segment two. Given that that will be a somewhat grim topic in our second segment, I think in segments one and three today, we're going to try and keep things a little more on the lighthearted side, which frankly isn't always an easy thing when you're spending time talking about what's in the news. And since some of our items from this day in history are a little bit sober, we're going to instead jump right to our quote, joke, and anecdote of the day straight off. Our quote of the day comes from football coach Lou Holtz, who said, Never tell your problems to anyone. 20% don't care, and the other 80% are glad you have them. Our quote of the day comes from David Letterman's writers, who noted recently, Syria is now saying they will agree to give up their chemical weapons if Miley Cyrus agrees to give up whatever it is she's doing. Our joke of the day we're taking from Jimmy Fallon's writers which is that HBO announced a new detective show starring Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. Apparently, they try to break suspects using that new interrogation technique. Laid-back cop slash even more laid-back cop. Our anecdote of the day is as follows. The Harvard economist and ambassador to India, John Kenneth Galbraith, was having breakfast with President Kennedy on the morning that the New York Times published a profile of Galbraith. Kennedy asked him his opinion of the article. Galbraith said it was all right, but he did not understand why they called him arrogant. Kennedy replied, I don't see why not. Everybody else does. Our stat of the day comes from Salon.com, which noted that during Franklin Roosevelt's 12-year tenure as president, the Senate used the filibuster a total of six times, including twice in the 30s to block anti-lynching legislation. But in the past six years, the Republican minority has used the filibuster to block or stall legislation or presidential nominees more than 170 times. Now I think we'll move to on this date in history. The date today is the 19th of September. It was on September 19th in 1777 that Continental Forces withstood an attack by British troops under John Burgoyne at the First Battle of Saratoga. That's in New York. A month later, Burgoyne surrendered, an event that marked a turning point in America's Revolutionary War. Yeah, after that, the French thought we had a chance to win and started backing us. 
And apparently somewhere during that battle, relieved of his command, was Benedict Arnold. I'm not a historian, but I suspect that may have had something to do with his later switching sides. For our listeners overseas, we'd note that if an American refers to someone as a Benedict Arnold, they mean a traitor. And it was on September 19th in 1783 that the Montgolfier brothers, French ballooning pioneers, launched a hot air balloon over Versailles. The passengers were a sheep, a rooster, and a duck. The first manned untethered flight would take place in November. And uh, we'll have more to say about ballooning in just a minute. On September 19th in 1900, Robert Parker and Harry Lombaugh, better known as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, robbed the first national bank in Winnemucca, Nevada, marking their first time the duo worked as a team. This is a somewhat irritating item for this correspondent because my failure to identify Parker and Lombaugh as Butch and Sundance cost me a tie on Win Ben Stein's money some years back. I'm blaming Jimmy Kimmel for the way he read the question. And finally, on September 19th, in the year 1959, in one of the more surreal moments in the history of the Cold War, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev exploded with anger when he was informed that he was not going to be allowed to visit Disneyland. It was later claimed that the Soviet premier was denied entrance to Disneyland because they, they couldn't guarantee his security. But I think, in fact, Walt Disney was a bit of a right-winger and just didn't want this commie on his property. We think it's a sad thing. If only Khrushchev had been able to maybe sit down with Annette Funicello in the happiest place on earth, no less. Perhaps Cold War tensions could have been lessened just that much sooner. Hey there, hi there, ho there, yo, as welcome as can be. All right, as follow-up on our discussion a few weeks back on the value of pi, and let's face it, that's the kind of segue you just don't hear in many shows outside of Radio Parallax. And by way of reminder, we were quoting a little piece in Mental Floss magazine about people calculating pi out to 10,000, a million places, whatever. The magazine pointed out that the computers that keep the International Space Station humming around the clock only need pi out to 16 digits. This, uh, this got this correspondent interested in something that we talked about a lot decades ago in school, which was the number of significant digits you were dealing with. We used to get by using slide rules, and people think that's very crude now because, of course, all calculators all go out to eight places. But in reality, it's pretty tough to have anything meaningful in the real world out to eight places. In fact, five places is pushing it. So after we talked about that on the show some weeks back, I went to a drawer and pulled out an old calculator that dates to, I think, 1978, and decided I would use it for these calculations if I could get it to work. I took it down to our local watch shop, in this case, Ivanov's Watch Repair in East Sacramento. The good people there have kept many a watch of mine in full function, and uh, by God, they took a look at the calculator, scraped a little bit of uh, corrosion off it, kept the batteries in and started working again, which is frankly more detailed than you need, but I was just so glad to get an old calculator that's, you know, pushing four decades old working again. So I decided to look at significant figures this way. The calculator takes pi out to eight places. Although if you're keeping score, out to 10 decimal places, pi is 3.14159265535. I think my calculator rounds it off to seven, but really does calculate out to six five. Anyway, Let's take the diameter of the Earth at 8,000 miles and calculate 
a circumference using that value as pi. The figure you then derive is 25,132 miles, 3,913 feet, and 6.4 inches. That's pi out to eight places rounded off. Let's just see how accurate it is to round off pi to five places, 3.1416. Well, if you do that, punch in the numbers again, you'll be off a bit. On the face of the Earth, after making this calculation, if you start out in the face of the Earth using that calculation based on a known diameter, and try to calculate the circumference coming back around to where you started, you'd be 472 feet too long, which ain't bad. Anyway, if you need the kind of precision to operate the International Space Station, you can see why you might need a few more digits. But hey, just using five digits, 3.1416, and you, you're pretty close. Now, Mr. McMillan points out that uh, we mentioned that the ancient Greeks thought pi was 22 over 7, at least that was their estimate. If you use that, in lieu of what the calculator uh, provides for you, you're still not too far off. In fact, Archimedes, using 22 sevenths in place of pi and given a known Earth diameter, would only come out 10 miles off. <clears throat> anyway, to cite the Mental Floss article once again, you can measure the circumference of the known universe with a margin of error no bigger than the radius of a hydrogen atom, which they note is a pretty good party trick, using just 39 digits on pi. So, uh, yeah, a thousand digits, a million digits, eh, whatever. I guess it keeps our mathematicians and computer scientists off the street. I think this might be a good time to jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Apparently it was a good week a few weeks back, actually a few months back, for censorship. With the news last winter that a Japanese town wants to put underpants on a replica of Michelangelo's David. Yes, we've been sitting on this one for some time, but apparently the 16-foot-tall statue caused quite a stir since it was presented to the town of Okuizimo as a gift. Said an official, it's frightening the children and worrying the adults with its nakedness adding, several people have asked us to cover it up with underpants. Other officials are hoping that residents will eventually get used to the nudity. Mr. Marillo expresses shock at this item, given that the Japanese have a tradition of co-ed baths. And continuing along in the inane vein, it was a bad week this week for life attempting to imitate art. With the news that, quote, Cluster balloonist, unquote, Jonathan Trapp, ha failed in his attempt to cross the Atlantic Ocean using multicolored balloons, as was done in the movie Up. Trapp, who's described as a seasoned cluster balloonist and the first person to have crossed both the Alps and the English Channel by this method, had hoped to make the crossing of the Atlantic, 2,500 miles, in three to six days. Instead, he abandoned his quest just 12 hours and about 350 miles into the trip by landing on dry land in a remote part of Newfoundland. The Guardian quoted Kevin Knapp, speaking from the command center overseeing this flight, that uh, the cluster balloon was never able to achieve a stable altitude and developed a yo-yo effect, rapid descents with the aircraft hitting the surface of the water, followed by rapid ascents to 21,000 feet or more. 
you know, I, I just think Mr. Trapp needs to work out a few bugs here. Shades of Lawn Chair Larry. And apparently it was an ugly week recently for messing with Texas with the news that a Montana company that made Western-themed accessories had to stop selling a don't-mess-with-Texas belt buckle after the Texas Department of Transportation, which owns the federally registered trademark, threatened legal action and told the firm to ship the offending merchandise to Austin. The trademark slogan apparently started out nearly 30 years ago as the clarion call of a campaign to reduce highway littering. But over the years, it's become something far bigger. I'm quoting the New York Times in this. An identity statement, a declaration of Texas swagger from barrooms to sports arenas to political conventions. And although Texas officials say they want to prevent, don't mess with Texas from losing its original anti-littering message, others say the state has been overzealous and is seeking to control a phrase so popular and so well-worn that people now associate it more with tough Texans than litter bugs. Which is somewhat confusing to us because we thought tough Texans were litter bugs. All right, the last two issues of New Scientist magazine contain items from the world of science, or I guess you'd say the world of geography. And and you wouldn't expect major discoveries in the world of geography, would you? And yet, according to the magazine, the world's largest canyon has recently been discovered. It's twice the length of Arizona's Grand Canyon, and it's under the ice of Greenland. New Scientist notes that the Mega Canyon does help to explain why the base of Greenland's ice sheet is not very slippery. That's, that's in case you've been wondering. But uh, seriously, I, I, f- I find this rather astonishing. Don't, don't you, dear listener? The world's largest canyon, and we didn't know it was there? Mr. McMillan voices the objection, Hey, come on, it's under ice. There may even be a bigger one in Antarctica. You know, you're correct, sir. <laughs> They're speculating on the, that very topic in the article. All right, well, how about this one? They just found the world's largest volcano. Not under ice this time, but underwater. It's apparently located off the coast of Japan and is larger than any other on Earth, by good margin, apparently. Now, for some years, planetary scientists have claimed that Olympus Mons, the enormous volcano on, uh, on the red planet, is the largest one in the solar system. Well... It may have been reduced to second place. Tamu Massif is 300,000 square kilometers in the Pacific floor, an area equal to that of the British Isles on top of that of Olympus Mons. Olympus Mons is a lot taller, though, so it still does retain its championship belt in that, in that area. This apparently is an example of a new look at old data. Geologists have, in fact, known of the Tamu Massif since the 1920s, but they had assumed that it owed its size to the output of several volcanoes, but after analyzing seismic data and rock cores, they concluded that all the lava originated from one summit. Uh, And in case you're wondering, this one's dead. It's been dead a long time. This mega volcano was active back in the time of the dinosaurs, 145 million years ago. Now we've looked it up here at Radio Parallax, and 145 million years ago marks the demarcation between the Jurassic and the Cretaceous periods in the Mesozoic era. Coincidence? If you're a geologist or a paleontologist with an opinion on that, please feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We do hasten to point out that the opinion that the Tamu Massif may have been responsible for the end of the Jurassic period 
does not necessarily represent the opinion of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. And we have to admit, it's just a wild-ass guess. Anyway, we need to take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and I hope Mr. McMillan can find some member music from the theme from Jurassic Park or something suitable. And after the break, we're going to talk about the mysteries still surrounding the death of our 35th president. Stay tuned. 